Place Prayer Providence. I'm going to invite up uh, Larry and his son Jorgen. They're going to read the text. It's going to be chapter 1, verse 3 through 11. They'll pray for us, and then we'll see what God has. Thank you. You can flick that up. Good morning, Union Church. Let's, uh, let's prepare our heart by listening to the Word of God. I thank my God in the mandates of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, for I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that grace. I pray that you would uh, give John that grace as he speaks your words. Uh, give Union Church the grace to have ears to hear uh, and to do your word for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you so very much, Larry and Jorgen. Appreciate it. No problem. Thanks. <laughs> so there was a trend in 2020, early 2020, that came out, and it was called uh, How It Started, How It Ended. Uh, and it was people, it was a meme that started out with a picture, and, and there was a couple that started it all, like, oh, you know, just two strangers, and then they're a couple. But because 2020 went the way that 2020 went, that meme trend was quickly hijacked and taken over with how it started, how it's going. And, and here's a few of my favorite from that time. Uh, <laughs> how it started, how it ended. There's another one. Or there's a, okay, there, so yeah, a, a dog, all sorts of. There's one, Guy Fieri, isn't that how you pronounce his name? Uh, the chef with crazy hair, that's him. Yeah, it's, it's him in the first image. The second one is like a dumpster fire, you know, with him trying to extinguish it kind of thing. Um, and I bring that up because there's a common experience in life that I would call the expectation gap, where you thought something would go a particular way. It, it would be the best. It would work out. It just wouldn't be horrible, maybe. We set our expectations low, and, and then life happens, and it doesn't necessarily line up. It's encapsulated, I think, in one of my favorite prayers of all time, Nacho Libre, where he says, Precious Father, why have you given me this desire to wrestle and then made me such a stinky warrior? <laughs> if you've not seen that movie, that is your homework this week. Go see Nacho Libre. Every letter of Paul takes place in the gaps. On paper, everything for every church is there. They should succeed. 
However, where there's people, there's problems. And when there's people, there's difficulty. And so what's on paper and what is happening as a result are not necessarily lined up. It's very much like my fantasy football team this year. I was in retirement and a friend talked me out of it and I'm 0-3 and I'm okay with that. I just need to win today. Is Carolyn in here today or is she in kids? She's in kids because I'm playing her son. I need to win this week to beat Corey um, and then I can retire again. On paper, it should line up. The results uh, leave some longing. And so for Every church, it starts with salvation and freedom and power and unity and excitement, it seems, around what God is doing in the midst of a city. And then how it goes is there's often bickering and there's drama and there's tension and there's false doctrine and there's false teachers and there's heresy that has to be combated within every single family of faith as we read through the New Testament. Often people go, oh, I want to return to the early church, the good old days. And you look at it and I go, just read the Bible because today's not so bad compared to what's often unfolding in the book of Acts and through the letters of Paul. I mean, just to take from a couple weeks ago with Galatians, I've not had to deal with so far. I mean, I've had to deal with some stuff pastoring over the last however many years, 2008, 14 years of, of life as a pastor, a man of the cloth, uh, you know, doing the Lord's cheap's duties and, and that kind of stuff. I've seen some stuff. I've never had to settle a disagreement around circumcision. Um, Paul was dealing with that. And so we find ourselves in Philippi, a place where there's fertile soil for faith to grow. And we're going to look at the place. We're going to look at Paul's prayer here in chapter 1 and the providence of God working among his people. And the foundation of the church is really interesting because it starts through a forbidding. Paul's desire in his missionary journey, we see in the book of Acts, is that he wants to go to Asia. He, he wants to go in that direction to continue his ministry of spreading the gospel and starting these churches and making disciples. But the Holy Spirit, it says, forbids Paul from doing so. And we don't get the exact reason as to why. We don't get the dynamics of how that all happens. We, we don't get any answers, just the Holy Spirit forbids Paul. He attempts multiple times to go into Asia. The Spirit does not permit him. But then he gets this vision of a man of Macedonia that says, come and help us. And so he sets sail into the northeast side of Greece. And we get a picture of the place here in Acts chapter 16, verse 11 through 12. We'll be going through there. You can turn there. It should be on the screen as well. It says, so setting sail, and you cue stick songs, I'm sailing away, from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. So Philippi was established, history tells us, in about 360 B.C. You get the name Macedonia. It was named after the father of Alexander the Great, who was Philip of Macedon. It was known for its gold mines and its garrisons. Rome took power of the city and reestablished it in the first century B.C., so 
50-ish, 55-ish years before Paul lands there. The Roman army and, and its retired veterans settled into this city. One commentary said that it was Rome in miniature, that they had a famous past, a privileged and proud present. It, it was a place that was known for its prestige. It was marked by wealth, by affluence, by power, by its allegiance and affection for the Roman Empire. They loved who they were. They were impressed by who they were. The idols in that place politically ran deep. And so knowing that, we could step back and go, can the gospel change a place like that? A place marked by wealth, affluence, power, and success. I mean, it was Jesus who said it's difficult for a rich man to go through, uh, enter the kingdom. It's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. Can the gospel reach this place? Well, change begins to happen when God's work coincides with humans' work. When those things intersect, something happens. And so on the human side, you will see praying and preaching and caring for people in a place. And then you see God working out power and illumination and transformation, bringing understanding and salvation to this place. We see that in Acts chapter 16, verse 13 through 15. It says, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who had heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. This is amazing to see. Paul in his Traveling companions, Luke, who is writing Acts, is saying they just go to a city, they sit and observe real people doing real life, and they strike up conversations with them. They meet Lydia, a seller of purple, the old King James would say, which I love. Just It doesn't say purple goods. ESV like adds that word goods so that we have... In an American context, an English context, a little more understanding. But it was believed purple dyes that she was well-to-do a businesswoman from the city of Thyatira. She's there. Paul strikes up a conversation. She leans towards worshiping God. And she comes to salvation, is baptized, and her whole family. And so you go, yes, it's a dream come true. The gospel has met this place. A new church is to be formed. And you can write the script. They all live happily ever after except not because they go to prayer the next uh, a little bit later in verse 16 and then you see what happens and we're going to the place of prayer and we're met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling she followed Paul and us crying out these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, I love this. Having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. 
And it came out of her that very hour. Like, I have a lot of questions that I'm going to ask. I mean, probably not, but it's one of those hypotheticals in heaven, like talking to Paul and being like, so you could have cast it out, but you didn't until you were just greatly annoyed? It got that bad? What was that like? Like you see a demon possessed and, and like it's not the time, it's not the place. I don't know. Just wait till this girl heckles him enough. I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And again, you could go, oh, that's great. Hallelujah. This is good news. Somebody's being delivered. And they all live happily ever after. No. But when her owner saw, verse 19, that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Again, remember the roots of this city. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore their garments off and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet with these stocks. So you get an exorcism by annoyance that leads to them being placed in prison. And so here you have this place, Philippi, that is filled with potential. It is riddled with politics. It is possessed. And Paul and Silas find themselves now in prison. How it started, how it's going. But you see, even in this story, and we aren't going to take the time to go into it. You can read this after you watch Nacho Libre, verse 25 through uh, 40. What happens in the prison, Paul and Silas are praying. They're singing. Uh, there's an earthquake. The, the jail is, you know, their, their doors are broken open. The, the jailer, the Philippian jailer, the guard is suicidal and about to kill himself because of this. And they preach the gospel to him and he comes to faith. And so it's, it's this mix of craziness and difficulty and hardship that is together working with God's salvation and power and deliverance and freedom entering into a place. And what's true about Philippi is really true about anywhere where there's people. There's potential and there's possession. There's idols and there's barriers and there's God who is always at work wherever he has placed his church. And so later on in Paul's journey, it's a different imprisonment that he writes this letter back to the church addressing the issues and looking to encourage them. And he begins with prayer, as he often does in his letters. And we see in this, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, that, that he starts and maintains a posture of gratitude. Gratitude changes everything. You, you see this just in the world. There's been neuroscience studies on this, the power of gratitude to change neurochemistry within individuals. It's, it's radical what gratitude can do for humans. And again, here's Paul's situation. He's in jail. Things have not necessarily gone as planned, but he's thanking God, remembering them as he's praying with joy. 
There's joy all throughout this letter. And it's a command throughout scripture to, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. And when there's a spirit of gratitude within an individual, it it changes everything. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And Paul shares this with them because of God's faithfulness in the past. He has confidence in the present and his hope and expectation for them in the future. You see that in verse number six, which is well known. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. How can Paul say that when he finds himself yet again in prison, when things have not gone his way because he's seen God at work in the past, and he is placing that faithfulness of God in the past into the present, trusting him, depending on him, and that gives him a hope and an expectation for the future. And what it brings up in me as I look through Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 11, in in some of the other prayers of Paul in his letter is, is this, what happens in a people in a life when they're centered and they're rooted on Jesus. And what happens? A life that is centered and rooted on Jesus, there's things that flow out from it naturally. Proverbs 4 tells us to keep our heart with all vigilance for out of it springs the issues of life. That that in the biblical category of, of heart, it's more the center, the core of your being. And what it's What's at the core then has an effect on everything. Our relationships, our words, our attitude, everything. And so for Paul, we see a life that not perfectly, but it it seems pretty well from human standards, is centered on Christ and looking to share the gospel in the world. What flows from that kind of life is prayer. And again, there's so much that has been said uh, about prayer. I think we have two or three books on the table. We probably need to order more. There's all sorts of books and conferences and resources to help us in our life in, of prayer. But, but again, the question at my core is, what's produced in prayer when a life is centered? What does prayer look like and sound like when a life is centered? Well, it looks like this, that he's asking for them that love might abound. That they might have knowledge and all discernment so that they may approve what is excellent that they might be rooted and grounded in love, and that from that core center place of love for God and neighbor, knowledge and discernment would happen. And not just a knowledge so that they can have more information and feel smarter and, you know, really do a good job on the Christian Scantron test that we think in our minds is going to exist when we enter the pearly gates. Gotta have your, you know, Cross your T's and dot your I's. That's not what Paul's after. It's not just simply knowledge. It's not simply information transfer. It's it's about approving what is excellent. Being pure and blameless for the day. And there's a huge focus within the New Testament about the day of Christ's return. And the promise that Christ is going to return isn't again for more speculation. And if you've been around here any amount of time, you've Heard me get on my soapbox about this, about the, the predictions and the, the theories and all those sorts of things. And for sake of time and, and your sanity, I'm not going to go there today. Uh, yeah, thanks, Anthony. But that vision of the future is shaping life in the present. 
a love that abounds that's tethered, again, to knowledge and discernment. Why? So that God's people can approve what's important, what's excellent, that, that they would be able to figure out what really matters in life, that we might be ready for Christ's return, being filled with the fruit of Jesus, through Jesus, for the glory of Jesus. And so how does that happen in us and in Paul? Well, if we are, again, centered on Jesus, from a life that is centered comes a life that prays. And from a life that prays, certain things are produced. And I think one of the main things that is produced in a life of prayer is that we press the providence of God into every place of our lives. So when we are praying and we're rooted in scripture, we will take the providence of God and press it into the places of our life. Now, providence, again, a fancy word that after this definition, you'll be able to pass the Scantron test that is never going to come. Jerry Bridges said, God's providence is this, God's total care and governance of his creation for his glory and their good. Providence of God is his total care and governance of his creation for his glory and their good. If you were to put it in a verse, again, Philippians 1, 6, I am sure of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Paul in his own life demonstrates that Christ in the life of a follower, a disciple of Jesus, Christ is to be everything. He says that in this letter, whether I live or I die, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, I'm in jail, I might die. This is a terrible paraphrase. He says, so if I die, that's an advantage because I'm going to be with Christ. But if I stay, I'm going to continue working and preaching and and doing the work that I'm called to do in and for Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Christ is everything in his life. He says so much in Galatians chapter 2. Not going to be on the screen. Uh, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus affects thoughts, words, desires, prayers in every single season and circumstance of his life, including uncertain ones, of which he finds himself now being in prison yet again. In his gap of expectation of even how this church was formed, of wanting to go to Asia. And I don't think he's just going, forget Philippi, they stink. He's just going, my desire is this way. I don't, that's where I believe God's calling me and Holy Spirit forbids him. But all of a sudden, this church is planted. Great. But then he finds himself yet again in prison. And so Paul is constantly, as we are called to constantly die to ourselves, our sin, our flesh, have our desires reoriented constantly with what Jesus wants in our lives. And that gift of transformation, that gift of perspective, that gift of change is ours in Jesus. Well, how does it come? Our minds, our lives, our hearts centered on God, who he is and what he's done. And that's what is available to us. You go, oh, that's so hard. And I go, yes. The human experience today, I don't think it's ever been easy. It's not easy. 
with the distraction and the sin in our family of origin and people. That's one of the sentences, first sentences that my youngest ever said. And he encapsulates so much wisdom in this. He said, me, no, like people. <laughs> you know, sweet Theo, you're on to something. It's going to be a tough existence for you, bud. <laughs> but God has given us everything we need. And we trust his care, we trust his providence, we trust his work, even though so much of it is mysterious and we get a fraction of the answers that we want or feel like we need, but we place that in our lives and change happens in a church. The center of Philippians is found in chapter 2, really verse 5 through 11, this church, it was believed, was dealing with um, some dissensions, some disagreements, some argument. And Paul is, again, just encouraging them of what the Christian life is to look like. And I'm going to read verse 1 through 11 because it's, it's so good. He says this, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know how hard that is? Have you ever attempted that for any length of time? It's not our default. And if you're reading ahead and you're, you know, you're that type of person, I, I forgive you, but just hang with me for a second before we get to verse 5. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only out to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's so hard to do. And I don't think I'm alone. Anybody struggle with putting others ahead of themselves? It's, it's nails on a chalkboard of the heart. It's like going against the grain of our natural default operating system in our heart. It's a splintery existence. Now, when we, we don't do that, it also doesn't go well, and we know that. So here we are, trapped. Paul and Jesus is calling us to love others, put others ahead of ourselves. And, and again, science and psychology and all that goes, that's actually really good for you. you go, that's impossible. And the gift is this. Paul, inspired by the Spirit, doesn't tell us to do that. And if you don't do that, you're a horrible human. Or he doesn't say, you know what? It's just willpower. You got it. And if you don't, well, then you're just weak or you stink. He doesn't do that. He gives a completely different source and understanding through which the Christian is supposed to live. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, 
though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The center of this book is all about the condescension of Christ, how God in heaven became a man. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. And that in his life, in his death, in his burial and resurrection, he is gathering together a people. He's forming a church and he's changing and transforming them from the inside out to be a living legacy of his love in the midst of the world. And the connection to that and the power for that is completely there for God's people then and today. Have this mind that you wouldn't, you know, count yourselves higher than others, that you would love others, that you would you know, lay aside selfish ambition and conceit. That mind is ours in Christ. And then Paul goes to these lengths to show us exactly who Christ is and what he's done. And you get Old Testament echoes of, of Adam. You, you see, you know, the, the kind of residuals of Isaiah and the suffering servant through this passage. Again, Jesus who came, who lived, who died, who rose, who's exalted in all history is heading towards him. Paul's encouraging this church that your life is to promote him, is, is to evangelize him, about him, show him, display him. Again, we all know that every single life on this planet is promoting Something is evangelizing something. All of us have good news of something. It's the conversations that make up our daily life. It's the things that we find comfort in, that we want to share with others. And often that's, well, this diet has really worked for me. This exercise regimen, this vitamin, this whatever. Like, we all have those little tidbits of good news, those things that are working for us that we want to share with others. And, that's good. That's part of just the natural human framework. But again, the core, the foundational, the primary is to be Jesus. That we're looking to him, and as we look to him, then we're displaying him in the world. When Christ is center, again, providence, his work is pressed into every season and space of life. Beth Moore says that we're daily being indoctrinated by the world to have the opposite mindset. She's commenting on uh, Philippians 2. You want your life to speak? Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And that's not simply fuzzy thoughts and feelings in Christian cliches and the coffee cup mugs that have the verse on it. And if you have one today, there's no judgment or shame on that. But, but it's not a cultural Christianity. It's not a cliched Christianity. It's not a surfacey Christianity. This is what the church is built and grounded on and the only reason why the church has lasted as long as she has. Ours included, even though it's three years. Being rooted in Christ brings fruit in life. Rejoicing 
praying, God's people being a non-anxious presence in the world. Probably the most famous passage in all Philippians comes from chapter 4, verse 4 through 7, where Paul says to the church, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. You can make a song out of that. (laughs) Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. There you go. (laughs) Old-time church people. Let your reasonableness, I think the New King James says, your gentleness, let your reasonableness be known to everyone the Lord is at hand. That's another sermon for another time. But folks, uh, just side note, all your online interactions, is it reasonableness or gentleness? Is that what's being made known to humanity? Often today, because all of us have keyboards and can send messages out to the entire world that we really think they all need to hear, it's often not reasonable or gentle. Another sermon, another time. Anthony's back next week. (laughs) The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It's something that is needed desperately in the world today. A non-anxious, gentle, reasonable presence that is gifted to us in Jesus. Now I want you to just think about your own mind, your own body, your own heart, and what takes you out from center. Because all of us have experienced and lived into when we're in a healthy spot, when we are seeing Jesus consistently. We're experiencing, again, the the truth of God and placing the truth of God, not just as some ethereal mental exercise. I've read my Bible, check it off the list. I've said a couple prayers, check it off the list. Go about my day. But when you're resting in the peace and truth of Christ, and that's then having a trickle effect in life, what is it in your life that is getting you off from that? Internet browsing habits? The intake of the news media channel of your choice? Again, the world is built in such a way to take people into anxiety and into fear and into distress because often there's a whole lot of dollar signs behind the cure for that. And there's not time to go into the history of the news and how the news has shifted, but the news today is all about dollar signs. That's all it is. And so we got you hooked, we're going to give you a perspective, we're going to give you a worldview, and and we're going to place some fear, because if you're fear, there's a chance that you might be a little bit more active in this space, and it's all connected to money. What keeps you from being a non-anxious presence in the world? Just do a, a, a gentle, compassionate review of your life. This isn't Oh, I stink and I'm terrible. And blah, blah. No, just go, what takes me off center? Let's just have an honest moment. What is it in your life, in your heart, in your communication, in your work that takes you off center? Then it's not as simple as just stop it. Though it is, it's by the grace of God and the truth of God in those places of life. What is Jesus leading you into? What does a non-anxious presence look like there? 
Paul gives, and it's not simply an equation, but he's saying, be anxious for nothing. You're like, oh, great. Well, I'm anxious about everything. He's saying, okay, so pray in those places. Take those places mentally, physically, and put them before God. Invite somebody else into that stress, into that difficulty, into that trauma, into that fear. Ask for their help to pray with you. And I can, and I'm not a guarantee guy, I can guarantee God will do something there. I didn't say he's going to fix it. He's going to do something there. Paul says the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You've seen those people who are going through hell in their lives, and they're just grounded, they're just rooted. And it's, again, not that they aren't dealing with what's actually happened, like medicating it away or just, you know, not dealing with the weight and the truth of it, but are allowing the truth of who God is and the providence of what God has done in Jesus and are placing that into their lives and relationships and difficulties and suffering. You go, that's contagious. I want to be like that when I grow up. Church, this is what we are called to in our daily lives. Our lives will be proclaiming something. Our lives will putting, be putting hope in someone. What is it? Our age today is that of anxiety. That's the social philosopher Marshall McLuhan. He coined the term uh, back in like the 60s or 70s, age of anxiety that has continued into today. Our hyperconnectivity hasn't uh, fixed that problem. And so Paul leads God's people then and now to prayer. Again, Prayer changes something. Because in prayer, what we're doing is we're reorienting ourselves to the fact that God is in control. I mean, why would you pray to a God who isn't in control? You're wasting your breath. Just get to work, figure it out, fix it yourself. But we realize deep at the core of our being, I'm not in control. And life has a, a brutal and hilarious way of showing that again and again and again. And so when we pray, we're actually giving credence to the fact that God is in control. This is why we are talking to him. Help. And that does something in our lives. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, says this, to be cynical, which is a besetting sin of mine, to be cynical is to be distant. While offering a false sense of intimacy and being in the know, Cynicism, cynicism actually destroys intimacy. It leads to a creeping bitterness that can deaden and even destroy the spirit. A praying life is just the opposite. It engages evil. The psalmist was in God's face, hoping, dreaming, asking. Prayer is feisty. Cynicism, on the other hand, merely critiques. It is passive, cocooning itself from the passions of the great cosmic battle we are engaged in. It is without hope. And so a certain kind of life is promoting when one leans into the providence of God. And it shines all throughout this letter. There's joy, there's gentleness, there's gratitude, there's peace, there's love. And that, I love that Paul says, in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard, it will protect. It's as though he knows there's a battle at hand and there's so many threats inside of us and outside of us to the peace of God ruling and reigning in our hearts. 
but in and through prayer where we take the care and the, the faithfulness of God and place it into those gaps of life, something is produced. And so we see grace transformed Paul. Grace was transforming Philippi. It is changing us and spreading out into the Quad Cities, not just simply through us, but the churches that are proclaiming Christ, and there's many of them. And so how has it started for you in your life? How is it going? How would you fill out that meme if you were to today? Well, in there, our call is to be present in the place where we actually are. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to hide. We can be where we are without fear, being present in this place. And in that place, we're called to be shaped by biblical prayer, letting scripture shape and lead a life of where we need to be directed by God and press his providence into those places. And I'm, just, I'm, I'm amazed because in these three short years together, there's so many reasons why we all should not be in this room today. I mean, remember the last three years? Am I the only, am I the only one? But we're here. How? I, I know for a fact, and I, I don't say this, you know, with a false sense of humility. All the church can say amen. It's not because of my brilliance or personality. And, and you all can say even a little louder, also not Anthony's. Or any one particular, it's, it's, it's the grace of God working in a family. We're called union because there's this gift. This mind is ours in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is this idea of union, that we are one with him. And being one with him, we're one with one another. And the only reason that this church exists is by the grace of God knitting us together in him and with one another. And the only thing that will sustain us is the grace of Christ, rooting us together deeper in him and with one another. What might be produced? Well, I already see it. There's love. There's belonging. There's family. There's connection. There's grace and mercy and patience for this journey that we broken, beautiful sinful people are being knit together in as we follow Jesus together. Let's pray. And so Jesus, we thank you that even though life is wild and unexpected and disappointing and hard, that you have sustained us, that we have breath in our lungs today, and with that we praise you and thank you. And recognize that, uh, yes, you've led us and guided us and, and, and equipped us to face these challenges and difficulty that, that we face, some more than others. And God, I, I thank you for the reminder that it's only by the grace and mercy of Jesus. I thank you, God, that this, this faith of ours, it's not simply a philosophy, it's not simply a religion, it's not simply the, the construct of one person's mind, but you, Jesus, actually came as a person. 
that you really died on a cross. And the evidence is so strong that you rose from the dead and have promised to return for your people. And until then, you've gifted us with your spirit to follow you. And so would you reorient our hearts? Would you displace and dispel our anxiety, our fear? Would you heal our wounds and equip us to love you and this world and one another well? In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.